0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And on this day in history, the great Miles Davis passed away. And we do this days in history unlike anyone else. We'll do Rockefeller, we'll do the Gettysburg Address... But we also do Bob Dylan and Miles Davis, because these people are important. They change lives, and frankly, sometimes they change the course of history, music history. And Miles did that. 48 studio albums, 36 live albums, 35 compilation albums, 17 box sets, 3 soundtracks, 57 singles, and a bunch of remix albums. And Miles was born the son of a prosperous dental surgeon and a music teacher. And he was born Miles Dewey Davis III in 1926 in Alton, Illinois. Davis grew up in a supportive middle-class household where he was introduced by his father to the trumpet at the age of 13. Davis quickly developed a talent for playing that trumpet under the private tutelage of Elwood Buchanan, a friend of his father who directed a music school. Davis played professionally while in high school. When he was just 17 years old, He was invited by Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker to join them on stage when the famed musicians realized they needed a trumpet player to replace a sick bandmate. What an opportunity. In 1944, Davis left Illinois for New York, where he would soon enroll in the remarkable, the world-renowned Juilliard School, known at the time as the Institute of Musical Art. Here, Miles Davis talks about those early years at Juilliard and his reaction to being told by a teacher that black people played the blues because they suffered.
1: I told a student teacher of mine like that in Julia, She started talking about, um, well, you know, the black people would despondent at night and they just, and they'd say, that's where the blues came from. So I raised my hand. I said, like, listen, my father's rich, my mom is good looking, and I can play the blues. I never suffered and don't intend to suffer.
0: And it's so true. The idea that one race or one class has a, has a monopoly. monopoly on depression or blues or anything is just stupid. And we don't countenance here on Our American Stories. Davis sought out Charlie Parker, and after Parker joined him, began to play at Harlem nightclubs. He met several musicians whom he would play with and form the basis. For bebop, a fast improvisational style of jazz instrumentals that defined the modern jazz era. Here's Charlie Parker with Miles Davis on Bird of Paradise. <laughs> 1945, Miles elected with his father's permission to drop out of Juilliard and become a full-time jazz musician. And my goodness, we know and hear this story again and again and again. Drop out of school, learn your craft. A member of the Charlie Parker Quintet at the time, Davis made his first recording as a bandleader in 1946 with the Miles Davis Sextet. Between 45 and 48, Davis and Parker recorded continuously. It was during this period that Davis worked on developing the improvisational style that defined his trumpet playing. Here is one of his early recordings from 1945 called Now's the Time. In 1949, Davis formed a nine-piece band with uncommon additions, the French horn, the trombone, the tuba. He released a series of singles that would later be considered a significant contribution to modern jazz. They were released as part of the album Bertha Cool*. In In the early 1950s, Davis became addicted to heroin. While he was still able to record, it was a difficult period for the musician, and his performances were haphazard. Davis overcame his addiction in 1954, around the time that his performance of Round Midnight at the Newport Jazz Festival earned him a recording contract with Columbia Records. There, he also created a permanent band comprised of John Coltrane, Paul Chambers, and Red Garland. Here, Miles Davis talks about how he eventually kicked his heroin addiction, cold turkey.
1: I looked in the mirror one day and I just stopped. I went out to my father's place. He had a couple hundred acres of land. And I went out, and uh, he had two compartments like this for his guests. So I went in one of them and locked the door. And I stayed there for about, about five days before I could get up and walk. And then was said, I'm still a drug addict if I, if I use drugs. It's like being an alcoholic. But every day it gets better. Every day. And gradually
0: it leaves your head. Every day it got better and gradually it leaves his head. But he said he's always a drug addict. And when we come back on Our American Stories, the record that propelled him into stardom kind of blew. And, uh, And a career not much different than Bob Dylan in some respects. We learned about Dylan just not wanting to be trapped in any one medium... He hated the idea of being a legend, so did Miles, and he was always trying to pursue whatever was around the bend, whatever was next. And when we come back, more about the life of the legendary Miles Davis after these messages. our American stories and that is So What from Kinda Blue and it was the largest selling jazz album of all time selling 2 million copies unheard of for that particular genre and Davis continued to be a success through the 60s my goodness his bandmates included guys who would go on to found Weather Report Chick Korea, my goodness John McLaughlin it goes on and on The development of jazz fusion was influenced by artists such as Jimi Hendrix and Sly and the Family Stone, reflecting the fusion of jazz and this music called rock and roll. Here the great jazz musician Herbie Hancock tells a story about Miles Davis and his eccentric behavior in the 1960s before they recorded an album called Seven Steps to Heaven together.
2: 1963, I get this call from Miles which led to me going to his house, not knowing what was going on. He had some music there, and we started playing. He played for a minute, minute and a half, and then he took his trumpet and threw it down on the couch, and he said, oh, crap. Well, he didn't, not crap, he used another word. But anyway, he, he ran upstairs, and we didn't see him for the rest of the day. This happened for, for three days in a row, a mouse just play a tiny bit and then leave us. What I found out, maybe, Twenty or 25 years later is that Miles actually ran upstairs to his bedroom and he was listening to us on his intercom and he knew that if he had stayed down there we would have been nervous and in order to hear us kind of unencumbered he, he, he removed himself from there which is so wise and so compassionate he didn't want to make us nervous so that way he could hear what we really played like Next thing I know, on the last day, he played a little more with us. And then he said, okay, next Tuesday, we have to meet at Columbia Recording Studios. And uh, we recorded a record called Seven Steps to Heaven.
0: Wow. How smart. I mean, if you're Miles Davis or you're Michael Jordan and you enter a room, everything changes. It just does. And what wisdom and what eccentricity, let's just say. If you want to call Miles anything, call him an eccentric. Here's Herbie Hancock going on to talk about how Miles Davis turned him on to the music of one Jimi Hendrix.
2: Jimi Hendrix, I mean, what an amazing musician. But at the time, I didn't know that. And the reason I didn't know that is because I had tunnel vision about jazz and classical music. So, just because he was playing bluesy style, I I just completely blew it. Because it was bluesy and it wasn't like the modern jazz, up-to-date jazz that I was listening to, I, I just didn't pay any attention to it. Thanks to Miles Davis, I changed my whole viewpoint because I found out Miles was very open about music. And Miles was Mr. Cool, like the coolest guy I'd ever met. So I said, if Miles is open about music, it must be cool to be open about music. So then I started listening to James Brown, then started listening to Jimi Hendrix. And, and this was around the time that there
0: was a rumor going around that Jimmy
2: and Miles were going to get together.
0: Wow, what, what a show that would have been, huh? The album Bitches Brew, recorded a few weeks after the 1969 Woodstock Music Festival, set the stage for the jazz fusion movement to follow. Bitches Brew soon became a best-selling album released March 30, 1970 on Columbia Records. Here's a track from that album called Spanish Key. The album continued his experimentation with electric instruments, previously featured on his critically acclaimed In a Silent Way album. With the use of these instruments, such as the electric piano and guitar, Davis rejected traditional jazz rhythms in favor of looser, rock influenced improvisational style. And as a result, Davis was featured on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine, becoming the first jazz artist to be so recognized. For his traditional fans, this change of style was not welcome. And recall with Dylan, when he plugged in at Newport at the Folk Festival, they went crazy, but he was moving on. He fell in love with rock and the guitar, the electric guitar. This exemplifies Davis's ability to experiment and push the limits of his own music style. Like we hear from many accomplished musicians, Miles Davis didn't like being called legendary. Here... Miles explains why he thinks it's never a good idea to call anyone a legend. It's not a good thing to say somebody's a legend. Because
1: it makes makes you think like an old man with a can and stuff, and they finally found you and you're a legend because everybody talks about you, what you used to do. You know? So rather than labels, you know, I don't like to To be labeled as anything but a musician.
0: And Miles. Here, Davis talks about how he really learned to play his instrument, and it had nothing to do with being black, like so many white people think.
1: I turn on the black station, and I practice while I listen to it. I play with them. But you have to find your own way to to learn after you go to school. Then it starts. When you get out of conservatory, it hasn't started yet. It's no shortcut. You know, I'm no accident. You know what I mean? White people give the black musicians in America the attitude they, they don't have to practice. You got it. It's natural. It's not so. You have to practice and you have to study.
0: You have to practice and you have to study. Here, Miles Davis explains how his, quote, round tone is immediately recognizable while other trumpet players aren't. I have a sound that
1: that, that other trumpet players don't don't have because the sound that I like when I was 12, 13 is a, a round tone. That's the reason when I played Flight of the Bumblebee and Carnival of Venice, I had to play like Harry James. That's a white sound. But the sound that I have, the Japanese people recognize it. As soon as I hit it, if I'm not on stage and I warm up or something, they can hear the sound. Because there's a lot of good musicians that aren't, you know, that don't, don't play. People walking around and can memorize. And they recognize my sound, like Frank Sinatra's voice. Or Jane Brown, you know? You can you can you know who it is. It's the
0: sound. And Miles continued to play and play. And here he is talking about just that. He says the music is just always in his head.
1: I can't say I'm not gonna play in ten years, you know, because I love music so much. I have to play something. As long as, as long as these things come in my head, you know? I mean, I get melodies. Yesterday was just... As long as they come in my head, I'll play. I hear short phrases. And I hear a lot of calypso. And a lot of 680 short phrases all the time even when you even when I eat it's always something there something there now but
0: I'll I'll be playing next 10 years even when he eats it's always in his mind on September 28, 1991 Davis succumbed to pneumonia and respiratory failure, dying at the age of 65. Fittingly, his recording with Quincy Jones at the time would bring Miles Davis his final Grammy, awarded posthumously in 1993. The honor, just another testament to the musician's profound and lasting influence on jazz. stories and we recently had an interview with John Brankus you may know him as the sports science guy on ESPN he's a big time producer and John still hosts sports science as they break down today's biggest sports stars and look at their abilities in a scientific way with having over 1500 shows they include segments like giant NFL linemen showing off their strength or the jumping ability of NBA basketball stars they even had a show dedicated to the hot dog eating contest And that's, of course, in Coney Island every July 4th. Recently, John decided to try a new show. He launched his first ever podcast, The Brink of Midnight. In the show, John explores the moment where the guest credits the point when their life changed forever and made them into the person they are today. These guests span from athletes, artists, business people, and many other different fields. Here is Mr. Sports Science himself, John Brinkus, on how his podcast went from idea to to reality.
3: Music is a huge outlet for me. It's just sort of the thing that I do um, to unplug and unwind. And I put my guitar down for years while I was building our business. My wife comes walking by my office one day as I'm playing guitar and is singing over a song that I'm playing. And I'm just playing just as a pure release. I'm like, oh, my God, you're an amazing singer. Like, that's an amazing melody. Where'd you come up with it? She said, well, I was classically trained in the Long Beach Opera Company. I said, what? And she's like, I've told you this like 50 times. This is 10 years in the marriage. So we ended up writing a Christmas song. We put a Christmas song out, and it ended up charting. Sirius XM picked it up in heavy rotation on, on their Holly station, and the chart literally was like Madonna, Bruce Springsteen, Lizzie and John Brinkus, Bing Crosby. <laughs> like, how does this happen? So we created our band, Brink of Midnight, um, First. And we have, you know, at frankofmidnight.com we have all of our music that's up there. And we said, look, music is one avenue where we can put out positive energy, and a podcast is another one. And my wife really being um, the mastermind behind it all, you know, she's our lead singer for the band. And, and she, especially during this last election cycle, just said, look, we need to spread positive energy. We need to get positive stories out there because there's so much negative energy you can just feel it. It's something that you can almost taste how negative the world feels right now. Um, and I don't know if it's real or not, but I said to Lizzie, I'm like, you know, you're right. And I've been very fortunate to have a, you know, to work with some amazing people um, in all different kinds of fields, you know, and from philanthropy to finance to business to athletics. Um, and I said, you know what, let's get these stories out because everybody has an amazing moment where this event happened, and then from that point forward, nothing was ever the same. So, we started um, the Brink of Midnight podcast.
0: With his guests sharing their Brink of Midnight moment, John can sit back and hear some amazing stories.
3: The the Rob Riggle episode that we had has an amazing story, where the actor-comedian Rob Riggle was... um, He was actually flying in the Marines, and... He had been flying for three years, and they have you for eight years. And he he just was going to be a career pilot. That was it. His friend ended up calling him from Chicago. And he said, hey, Rob, you know how in college you were kind of a goofball and making people laugh? They have a name for it up here in Chicago. It's called improv. And people are making money at it. You should You should go into comedy. And here he is in the Marines flying planes. He's like, I've never even considered this. So he went down to the beach, and he said a prayer and was reflecting and said, you know, well, what, what is it that I should do? And he decided, you know what, I don't want to abandon my military service, but, what, but if I'm a pilot, then I'm in for eight years, and then you have to serve another nine and you get full retirement. He said, but if I transfer to ground troops, then I'm only in for five years, so I only have to serve two more years. And then he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to transfer to be on the ground troops. And he wrote down on a piece of paper while sitting on a beach. He said, I will be on Saturday Night Live. Ten years nearly to the day, he ended up being cast on Saturday Night Live. And that obviously launched him into the, the world of entertainment. He comes out of nowhere, gets a phone call, writes an intention down on a piece of paper, and ten years later it comes true a pretty amazing story, and all the podcasts have stories like that. I mean, there, the Ray Lewis episode, um, where Ray wanted to t- – he he was grew up in a really un- – in an underprivileged environment. His mo- he, he, he was being raised by a single mother who was in an abusive relationship um, with her boyfriend. And Ray, at the age of 14, said, Mom, give me a deck of cards. And he took a deck of cards, and she said, What do you need these for? He said, Don't worry about it. He would throw down a king and do 10 push-ups. He'd throw down an eight and do eight sit-ups. And he kept throwing cards down until he would do thousands of sit-ups and push-ups. So he got to be big enough and strong enough to get that guy out of his house. And that, he said, was his big moment where he, he literally saw that he could be in control of his life. He didn't have to just accept bad things going on around him. He could change it and take matters into his own hands. In an upcoming episode, we have um, Antonio Holmes from the Steelers, who made, I believe, the greatest Super Bowl catch ever because it won a Super Bowl. He grew up in the third port- poorest county in Florida, and he was one of five or six kids that all had different fathers, and he essentially he was the oldest and essentially uh, the patriarch of the family. And when he was 12, he went to his grandmother and said, There is greatness inside of me that will never be unleashed if I have to be a father at the age of 12. And his grandmother said, you come to church with me, you live the right way, and I got your back. And he said, making that Super Bowl catch didn't change my life. But that one day with that one conversation with my grandmother is what defined me as a person.
0: Just like those who have spoken on his show, John has a similar moment he likes to share.
3: I was traveling, I was actually working on a comedy show in Aspen, Colorado at the Aspen Comedy Festival and looking, uh, scouting for talent. I was flying back to Los Angeles and had to pass through Denver, and I was traveling with um, a business associate. We had a ticket mix-up, and we got separated so we weren't sitting next to each other. So I'm not even sure if I sat in the right seat, but I sat next to the most beautiful woman I had ever seen in my life. I fell instantly in love. And fortunately, there was a mechanical problem that forced us off the plane for five hours. And as we were all getting off the plane, I went up to the guy I was traveling with, and I said, I'll give you $100 to stay away from me. Just met the girl I'm going to marry. She calls her parents and says, I just met the guy I'm going to marry. And we were both dating other people at the same time. We get back on the plane, and when we land in Los Angeles, we exchange information. Turns out we live two blocks away from each other. On the same street in Los Angeles, and just do the odds on randomly sitting next to somebody, falling in love with them, and living two blocks away from each other. And we've now been, you know, happily married for 14 years. You have two wonderful children, and it's just those moments happen in everyone's life where the energy comes together and creates a moment where nothing will ever be the same.
0: And with his show, John continues to push his life lesson. Being positive.
3: The one thing I would say about being positive, um, a lot of people want to say, oh, that's just saying turn that frown upside down. you know. But it really isn't about that. It's about perspective. It's about what you see. Um, and I think that the idea of being positive is about what do, what is it that you're looking at? What are you seeing at the time? Um, and in really dark moments, how do you keep your eyes focused on looking for the light? That, that's really the trick, Is saying, how do I stay positive?
0: And that's what we try and do here on Our American Stories. And it is perspective, and we have so much to be grateful for. And there's no screaming and yelling here, and there's no politics here. And it's just good stories, life-affirming stories, redemptive stories. Here on Our American Stories, John Brinkus' story, The Brink of Midnight Story. More after these messages. Our American Stories, and we do every kind of conceivable story here on this show, from sports to the arts, from history to, well, we've done eulogies here on this show. They're so moving, and we call it Final Thoughts, and we've done uh, any number of them. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to listen to all that we do. And uh, a few weeks ago, we saw a headline in the Wall Street Journal, Great News for Pet Indulgers, The Cone of Shame Can Be a Pillow. And the cone, of course, they're referring to is that cone that we put around a pet's neck after a surgery. And in my particular case, as a young man, our pet dog, Bogie, used to chew on his tail and it got so bad, we had to put that cone of shame around him. And boy, it was uncomfortable. And in it, we bumped into a lady named Linda Markfield. And she works at all four paws in Santa Monica, California. And Linda, well, as always with Americans, we come up with great ways to solve problems. And, Linda, thanks so much for joining us.
4: Oh, it's my pleasure.
0: You know, Linda, before we start, you're an entrepreneur. I mean, you you started a business, and you started it around something you love, around pets and animals. Talk about how you started your business and why.
4: Well, people seem to laugh when I say this, but the honest truth is I've been doing products for over 30 years. I started with children's products because I'm cheap and lazy and I had a lot of kids. So I just hate wasting time and money. So, the products that I do are when I need them, and it's really, the products will be worth the money, and they will solve a problem. So, it will save you time and money.
0: Yeah, you're figuring if I got the problem, somebody else out there has got the problem, too.
4: Absolutely.
0: Well, in 2000, your dog, Sabre, had a problem. Talk about the problem and the problem you solved.
4: He had uh, part of his tail removed, and it just was, you know, he was in the traditional plastic cone. And, you know, there's two ways of thinking about it. If the owner will leave a plastic cone on, eventually the dog will heal as miserable as they are and the owner is. But I like ninety nine percent of the of the owners of a pet took the plastic off, and I had to go back the next day to the vet to get stitched, stable to get stitched. So I realized there had to be something better and something I would leave on. So I just made the first one out of an exercise mat, and it was developed from there.
0: And the exercise, mat, then how does that turn into a product, Linda? Because that's just so interesting. You're solving it yourself. Did people see it and say, wow, that's something? Or did something click in your mind where you went, hey, there's something to this. I think I, got, I can solve some other people's problems.
4: I realized how it worked so much better, and he slept, and he was more relaxed. So from the exercise, mat, I started developing which, which materials would be best, what things are the most comfortable, how stiff it has to be, how long it needs to be, the sizing. So it started from that, and when I realized that it did work, but I needed to make it a little better, I worked with vets and their opinions and you know other people, and from that, Comfy Cone was developed.
0: And now this, this comes in all different sizes for all different necks. I mean, you're talking from the smallest pets to the biggest pet. What kind of a dog was Sabre, by the way?
4: He was a great Pyrenees very large, 180 pounds, so um, we need to make a very big one.
0: And do cats need these cones, too? Do cats do this as much as dogs? Will they st- sort of eat their own uh, stitches as well?
4: Yes. And, then, you know, it's also, that you can put it over feeding tubes, IV lines. You can even turn it backwards. But, you know, when I was saying before about everything was a development, and just, from realizing that it did work we started uh hearing from doctors that did a lot of eye surgery so we realized that it needed to be something that was a little tougher at times. And because of that, I put removable plastic stays in three pockets in the cone. So I did it for two reasons. One, that they're removable, so if you're with your pet and you're supervising, you can take them out and fold it back, fold the comfy cone back. But if you're not with them or if it's an eye surgery where you can't take a chance of anything happening to the stitches because the pet could lose an eye, then you leave the stays in. So I, I kind of meshed together the plastic and the soft. But also because I realized, you know, doing things as a pet owner, I also realized that I had to make something that pet owners would leave on because they felt their pets were more comfortable.
0: Yep, and, and this comfort is the thing that matters. I remember my dog just how much he hated that cone, and it wasn't just that it embarrassed him. I think he saw all the other dogs look at him and got <laughs> got self-conscious. But you could tell that it was really irritating his neck, and yeah, it was just yeah. so hard. Uh, so, so The movie Up, by the way, uh, which came out in 2009, the, the recovery cone got a really bad rep. If you remember, Alpha forced yeah. Doug to wear that cone as punishment, and I thought, that just really hurts. What a mean son of a gun. Alpha was. Talk about that. Because, you know, in the end, do you think the dogs know? Do you think they know?
4: I don't. See, that's why I said at the beginning that, you know, if you leave any device on a dog, a plastic cone, let's say, eventually they will heal. But as humans, we project, and we want pets are family now. It's not just a matter of having a, a pet for protection or other needs. They are a family, and you want your family to be more comfortable. And since we have the ability to create things, why not do that? And also we realize with working with vets, you know, a misconception that, Uh, pets need to see their peripheral vision, and which really is not true. They don't have the same peripheral vision as humans. And what happens is, if they can see through something, they, everything's distorted a little. So they think, what am I seeing? What's that shadow? What do I do? I'm in a device. How do I protect myself? But I realize that dogs realize things just like horses, like blinders on a horse. If they don't see something, it doesn't exist for them. So they relax, and they're not worried about what's around them.
0: Yeah, I know. We have, a, we have a dog that just so overreacts to everything. We have a lot of windows and arrows. We were thinking of getting the cone just so she could relax because she's just so hyper. And I know about blinders and horses. We love horses yeah. on this show. And it, I think it would actually help her. But I think she would spend all of her life trying to get out of that cone all day long. Uh, it's Very, very tough. Tell me this. So you, you make the product. How do you market the product, Linda? I mean, obviously, you're trying to solve your own problem, but you're a business person. What's the next step? How do you get this product to market? How does it get to the attention of the Wall Street Journal? It's remarkable.
4: Thank you. Um, Well, we went to a trade show uh, right after I had gotten the product manufactured, and um, it just did very well. And it really, I have to thank uh, all our customers it's done very well, and they're the reason that we have been successful. But we also uh, will listen to pros and cons at, in the company. I love creating problems, uh, but i I creating products. Is this going to be okay because I can barely talk?
0: No, don't worry about it. Just start <laughs> over. Just say I love creating products. You're, you're sounding fine. Don't worry about it.
4: Okay. I love creating products. I lost my train of thought there. Um, What was your question again?
0: Well, it was just, you know, bringing it to market. And you were getting right to the area of, you know, you love creating products, but you listen to, you like to listen to all sides.
4: And then we realized that there are like dachshunds that have little necks but long snouts. So I started creating sizes that would work for that. I would take a small neck size with a medium-sized uh, length. And I did the same for, like, greyhounds and other types of pets. I really do try to correct things that don't work and to add things that will work. And, you know, believe it or not, the next product that I did, the Comfy Wrap, is actually the comfy cone for the body because as much as I love the comfy cone, I made it, I hate putting a cone on a dog, even the comfy cone, if they don't need it. So the comfy wrap is the comfy cone for the body, meaning it's the same material. It goes around the torso, up through the chest, over the back. So this way, if the pet has allergies or if it's a hot spot on the side, one of our pets, Seamus, who's a very large perinean mastiff, he always gets hot spots on his side. So he doesn't need the shape the cone shape to heal. He just needed that part covered. So for that I used the comfy wrap. And that's how that was that's how that one started for Sheamus. I'm gonna have but to I, get
0: a, I'm gonna have to get a comfy wrap for my cousin's German Shepherd Luger, who is always getting hot spots on the left side of his body yes. and he just digs into himself and it's so scary, Linda. I mean you can see him actually scratching himself and hurting himself. Um, so I need one of those comfy wraps absolutely. from you, Linda. How many? How much sales do you have at all four parts? What, what what kind of business has this turned into for you, Linda, if you don't mind sharing?
4: No, it's been, thank God, a very successful business. And we are international now. We're in about 12 countries. And um, I will always be creating new products. And we have two other products that we have, which are, not I would say, the comfy cone and the comfy wrap. Are our, our heart and soul, but we have other prop, products like the wipe it and the chill collar that we also make that also serve a purpose. So anything we make will serve a purpose and will be creative and will be our own design. I do patent our designs and they are unique. And um, you know we work we work like that.
0: Well, Linda, thanks for all you do for all the animal owners out there, and particularly the animals out there. The comfy cone, the comfy wrap, white bits, chill collars. Go to allfourpaws.com. That's allfourpaws.com. We love small business stories. We love entrepreneurs, and we love our pets. And this merges all of the above. Linda, thanks so much for all you do, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. This is Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories. And we love to dig into the idea and the reality of the American dream. I think a lot of people think it's dead. I think a lot of people are trying to sell it, such. But it's not. And we love digging in, thanks to Job Creators Network, into the real-life stories of folks who come here with nothing and build things. And it happens over and over and over again. it's why so many people are trying to get into this country and not to Cuba or to China. By the way, we did a fascinating story about a Chinese-American who tried to emigrate to China just as a thought experiment to see how many people are actually trying to go to China. And it's nobody. Nobody is trying to go to China. And joining us for the hour to talk about his life is Bernie Moreno, owner of the Bernie Moreno Companies, the largest luxury dealership chain in the Midwest, and that's car dealerships, of course. Bernie, thanks for joining us.
5: Oh, happy to have you.
0: You bet. Hey, we start off, Bernie, every interview we do by asking folks to tell us about where they were born, who their parents were, and the effect both of those things, both their place of birth and their family, had on their lives.
5: Yeah, no, well, for me, it's everything. Uh, I was born in Bogota, Colombia, and uh, my dad and my mom uh, both uh, were obviously uh, uh, born in Colombia as well. Our whole family's from there. My dad was educated in the U.S., so he uh, uh, he got his uh, uh, undergraduate degree in college in Columbia, got his uh, medical degree in Columbia, and then came up to the United States in the fifties to get his PhD at the University of Pennsylvania. And then my mom, who back then, you know, in, in the fifties, uh, most women uh, you would never think about is going to college. Uh, my grandfather insisted that she go to college, so she went. Uh, she came to the U.S. and studied in California and. Uh, the uh, the uh, At the time, the woman's equivalent of Stanford back then. Uh, so both my parents were educated there. They have a, they had a profound influence on my life, my values. And uh, so that's the story.
0: And tell me about the transition, because it's always so interesting to me to, to hear this story. I remember from my grandparents, one came from Lebanon, uh, one came from Italy. And I, oh, it always just fascinated me. That that trip because that that first trip is is tough. It's a real dare. It's a real act of courage in a way to just leave everything you know and go to a foreign land. Uh, what was that like for your your dad and then for yourself and your mom?
5: Yeah, now as my mom likes to tell the story, she packed up seven kids in twenty three suitcases and got in a plane and uh, we flew from uh, Bogota to uh, to Fort Lauderdale and uh, you know started a new life. Uh, it was particularly hard on my dad. My dad was. Uh, the dean of the medical school in South America and Colombia at, at the youngest age ever. So he was in his mid-30s, and he's the dean of, med- of the most prominent medical school in Colombia. Then he became what was the equivalent of the Secretary of Health for the country. And when he came to the U.S., even though he had all that background and training and everything else, he still had to get his residency. So he went from being you know, the palace to the outhouse pretty quickly, so he had to join basically 20-year-olds. Uh, getting the residency, uh, you know, with midnight shifts and twenty-four hour shifts and things like that, when he was had had been a, a pretty prominent person in Colombia, so he had to eat a lot of uh, humble pie, so we say.
0: Yeah, and but
5: uh, so, so watching him do that was very inspiring.
0: That is inspiring because my goodness, it also tells you how much he thought this was a really good move for his family. Because when a, when a father's willing to eat that kind of humble pie. He's doing it for a whole host of reasons uh, and more than maybe you could even imagine at the time.
5: Yeah, I mean, our our American story is probably a little bit different than most. You know, my my parents were very well off in South America. My grandparents were extremely wealthy on both sides of the family. My mom made a decision for us to come to the U.S. because one of the things that makes this country unique is that you are not uh, uh, driven by the circumstances of your birth in, in, in America. So if you're anywhere else in the world pretty much or you mentioned China anywhere else in the world if you're born wealthy or you're born poor you're going to stay in that trajectory whereas in the US you have to determine your destiny and my, it was very important for my mom for us to come to the US and be the determiners of our destiny she didn't want us to be uh, in a, she didn't want us to be in a situation where we took wealth and privilege for granted so we came to the U.S. and rebooted our lives, and we we came from, you know, a very privileged uh, background in Colombia uh, to being middle class in America.
0: Yeah, what a beautiful yeah. th- what a beautiful thing for your family to do for you, by the way. You know, we were talking to uh, Mario Andretti. He was one of our American Dreamers series, Bernie. And you know Mario's circumstance. His family had had some wealth in Italy, in the northern part of Italy. But then came World War Two, and then came Yugoslavia coming in to claim what was the family vineyard. And the fa- the father was asked, "Looking, keep part of your vineyard, but you've got to renounce your Catholic faith, and you've got to renounce well your your life, in essence, and swear allegiance to Tito." And his father's like, "No, thank you. No, thank you." And, and Mario and the family struggle for the longest time he comes to the United States to Nazareth and just invents this life and he said something interesting he said if I had grown up in Italy I had some wealth but in Italy you had it you were your class determined everything and I did not have enough wealth to be a race car driver but in America exactly right. merit merit right. is what gets you where you go exactly right and, and uh, in,
5: you know and my dad you know when he, he passed away three years ago but you know, he was the chief of surgery of the local hospital. He built a very thriving private practice. My mom had three real estate offices with 100 employees, but she sold a Caldwell banker. So we got to watch what people who are driven, that have uh, fire in their belly, who don't look at anything, any obstacles, as anything other than something that they need to be overcome. We watched and witnessed my parents climb that ladder uh, from middle class to, to wealth on their own merit and that's really i think at the end of the day what my mom wanted to teach us and it was it just left a mark mark with us that i'll never forget i mean she she made us work from the time we were 12 years old it just wasn't optional well when, and
0: uh, when we so come they, back bernie hold that thought When we come back, we're going to dig into that first job because we love talking about first jobs with everybody. We have Mark Cuban, we have Ashton Kutcher, Mike Rowe, you name it. And just everybody, we ask about work because work's so important. Obviously, your parents taught you a work ethos. No entitlement uh, in your family. Uh, In fact, they stripped it away by moving to the United States. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, our American Dreamers segment, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. More after these messages with Bernie Marino. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We continue our conversation with Bernie Moreno as a part of our American Dreamers series, brought to us, as always, by Job Creators Network. Bernie, we left off uh, with first jobs, and let's let's hear from you. You said you started work at 12 years old, and uh, my girl's about to turn 12 next year, and that's when I'm starting her, too. What was your first job? Yeah, so
5: you'll appreciate this. So We live in Fort Lauderdale, and as you know, there's a big group of condos in, uh, in that area. And so I was a paper delivery boy. So at 2 o'clock in the morning, some guy would pull up with a van, pick me up at my house, and drive me two miles to what's called Gold Ocean Mile. And then I would spend the next three hours delivering newspapers uh, inside uh, these big, huge condo buildings. And then I'd get back home around 5 o'clock in the morning, uh, sleep for an hour and a half, and then get up and go to school. Can you imagine putting your twelve year old daughter (laughs) and some strange guy in a van in the middle of the night? It was a different time. <laughs> it was a different time. You know, one of our <laughs> favorite. A week, by
0: the way. <laughs> we have this uh, Lenore Skenazy comes on our show on parenting, and she got d- dubbed the world's worst parent by the New York Post because she decided that maybe her little kid, her, her child, uh, I think 11 years old at the time, could take the subway to school alone, and they just <laughs> hammered her for it. And I thought, my, this is what everybody did when we were kids. So,
5: well, I, well, imagine what they'd say about my mom letting me get in a uh, van with some strangers! Oh the my goodness!
0: <laughs> Division of Youth and Services would be—she'd be in prison right now, Bernie. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> so let's talk about your 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 itch for cars. Uh, w- when did you first get that itch?
5: Yeah, so for, for uh, since I was a little, little kid, I could name every brand of car when I was four, five, six years old. It was actually a way I learned English. Uh, so I learned English watching Schoolhouse Rock, uh, watching Sesame Street reading car magazines, and I just loved cars. Uh, my dad loved cars himself. Uh, he, he, his favorite brand was Mercedes-Benz. So I would go to car dealerships, uh, uh, you know, ask them questions, go with my dad to buy cars. And um, you know, my dad used it as a marker. You know, Cars were a marker for him. Like if he thought he was being successful, he would buy a car that was just a little bit nicer than his previous one. And that was a really important marker that he used to, to kind of track his own progression. And uh, so I always knew I wanted to be in the car business. Just so, little kid, I always just, that was my dream.
0: You just knew, and it, and, and it's interesting that and uh, you may be one of the only freshmen in high school to ever write a personal letter to the head of General Motors telling him what was right and more importantly what was wrong with his car company. Talk about that.
5: Yeah, so we had taken a history class. We learned about Wilson's uh, 16 points uh, during World War One to end the war. Yep. So I wrote uh, I wrote Roger Smith the 16 points to fix General Motors. And uh, he actually wrote me back a three-page letter, one point by point. And, uh, and then he, he, he lied at the end. He said he was going to make sure GM was in good health when I, uh, when I took over.
0: <laughs> <laughs> by the way, I want to read something that he did write to you. He, he wrote this, quote, It's not often I receive a letter from someone who is planning to take over my job, Smith replied. You are to be congratulated for knowing exactly what it is you want to do once you complete your high school and college education. I'll try my best to make sure that General Motors is in good financial shape when you join us 11 years from now. So you're right. He did lie.
5: (laughs) He (laughs) did lie. Uh, but uh, and, then, and, and so that letter, you know, inspired me to, to go to the University of Michigan, because obviously that's where you go if you want to be at General Motors as an executive. I went there, went to work for Saturn Corporation, which is really his brainchild. So I give him credit for that. And uh, that's how I started my career in the car
0: business. You know, what's interesting is we did an hour on the life of Henry Ford and I didn't have an appreciation quite for what he and Rockefeller managed to do simultaneously because Ford was able to bring a car down to a price point where every American could own one. And but not for the spread of this thing called gasoline at low prices all around the country. What was going to power the darn thing? Uh, yeah, it
5: was amazing that those two guys lived during the same era. And obviously, as you know, we live here in Cleveland where Rockefeller made made his company. That's happen. right. And uh, it's, it's amazing today... Over 100 years later, a lot of the legacy of Rockefeller lives here in Cleveland.
0: Oh, you bet. With all the endowments, with all the, the things yep. he left behind. You know, it's amazing, Bernie, just a separate point, that the average American kid doesn't know these stories but somehow knows how bad these guys were or how bad these, quote, industrialists were. But, but for these guys, there's no American middle class.
5: No, absolutely. I mean, they were, you can't judge them by today's era. No, uh, you have to judge them by the year in which they lived. But these guys created, created, they helped create
0: it—the America that it is today. You bet. And, and Bernie, what was your first car?
5: First car was a Honda CRX, a red Honda CRX. I read in automobile magazine—I'm sorry, in Car and Driver magazine—about this new Honda that was coming out. Yep. It was seven thousand nine hundred ninety-five dollars. Uh, my uh, my parents still make it buy any car I wanted as long as I paid for it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I I saved up. You know, again, I'd worked since I was twelve. So when I was 16, I had, I had exactly that amount of money saved up. I went to the local Honda dealer. They had no idea about the car. They never even heard of it. <laughs> so I put a deposit down, bought the car, and uh, that was my first car. And every dollar, I, every dollar I made, I think 80% of the dollar went into
0: into the car. Was the CRX the mid-engine?
5: No, it was a little guy with the, the rear
0: hatchback. Oh, it's that's right, the, right.
5: Yeah,
6: yeah, yeah. I had an MR2,
0: which uh, oh, okay. which was a heck of a lot of fun to drive. And uh, did you did you get off the uh, sticker price on that, or did you have to pay full boat?
5: No, no, no. This is this is uh, this is the '80s. Uh, and I just aged myself. Yep. So Honda dealers were charged over sticker. Over sticker so because, it, because they hadn't heard of the car. Right. I was able to buy it for sticker. Shortly thereafter, they were marking all up two thousand bucks over sticker. So I was very happy.
0: Good for you. So you negotiated a good deal for yourself too. Too exactly. And uh, so so now you're, you're you're thinking about this thing called the car business. How do you get from coming out of college? To doing this thing called owning a, a dealership, and by the way, car dealers are—you know—in any town, they're the lifeblood of a town. Great, good, good jobs, yeah, yeah. Uh, good connections. They're, you, you can't imagine towns without them. But how did you? How did you do this leap? Obviously, you were not going to get any financial help from your parents for this.
5: No, no. My mom uh, uh, made it clear uh, that the contract was: we educate you to age twenty-two, and then we really, really love you after that. It's <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. Yeah, that's the deal. So, uh, I, I graduated from college, went to work for Saturn Corporate, met a, a guy in Boston who was a car dealer, went to work for him for 12 years. Uh, and uh, and then, out of the blue, 11 and a half years ago, uh, 12 years after working for this guy, uh, Mercedes Benz called me and said, Hey, we have a dealership. It's very underperforming in Cleveland. Uh, it's owned by Roger Penske. Uh, we've uh, convinced him to sell it. Uh, we want you to buy it. And uh, I had took every cent I'd ever seen in my life and mortgaged every, every possession I had and bought this one dealership that was selling 200 cars a year and uh, took that dealership and this year we'll sell over 3,000 cars. I was doing about $16 million a year in revenue. Our company this year will do close to a billion and uh, we just took that one dealership and grew it into the company that we have today.
0: And imagine this, Robert, this, for folks who don't know the car business, the Penske name It's a pretty good name. You're coming in there with no experience. This could have been the sucker sale of all time. You know know that, right?
5: Absolutely. But you didn't care, did you? No, no. You know, I knew. Listen, I I, I even said this to the Mercedes people. I said, if Roger Penske was the guy running that dealership, forget it. It Roger Penske could run circles around me. There's no question about that. The guy's an amazing man. But I knew that who was running that dealership was somebody who was maybe a C or D player Yep. Uh, because this was such a small dealership. I knew that I could make a difference in that store, and that's what I did. Uh, and so I'll always be for, eternally grateful to, to Roger Pesky for giving me the opportunity to buy that store from him. Yep. And like I say, he's, he's an amazing man, amazing story. He happens to be from Cleveland as well. But, uh, you know, we were able to take that dealership and just be very successful with it.
0: Yeah, and, I, and I'm sure, you know, a guy like him is happy for your success too. That's the thing about the, the, the folks that I think are often mis, mischaracterized or maligned by the media. And that's, I think, business people. And that's half the reason we're doing this kind of show, Bernie, is because uh, American people don't really know what goes into starting businesses or who these people are. And now they're hearing your story and the risks you took with your own capital and your time. What was the key to turning that place around? Talk about some of the things that you did that weren't being done by the management before before you.
5: I think it was, it was. It all starts, and success all starts. And this is again ingrained in with me, with, with my, with my mom, which is, uh, uh, you. It's all about attitude, the attitude that you have towards any objection that you have out there. There's, you can, you can buy into a million excuses as to why you shouldn't be successful. Uh, there's something I call the immigrant mentality, and I had that immigrant mentality when I came to Cleveland to buy this dealership, because I was all in. There was no plan B. There was no scenario in which partial success or s- small failure would be acceptable. So I knew I was all in on this dealership. And uh, so as a result, I had to be successful. So I, I, if there was an obstacle, I just didn't buy into it. it. It just, you know, Cleveland's a blue-collar town. I heard that. They don't buy Mercedes in Cleveland. Just that wasn't an option for me. Right. I couldn't, I couldn't believe that that was true. Uh, and so we just did it, and we, and we took exceptional care of our clients. You know, one of the things with me is that I love cars so much, like we talked about, but people don't love buying cars, which doesn't make sense to me. They don't love servicing cars. Yep. So our company's philosophy is changing that. And we, we think of it as how do we put ourselves in a customer service business where people look at coming to a car dealership as a really positive experience.
0: What a crazy thought, and let's hold that thought. When we come back, we're going to talk about this thing called fans as opposed to customers. Bernie believes in that. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib. This is our American Dreamer series, and this is our American Stories. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And it's our American Dreamers segment. And we're spending the hour with Bernie Marino, owner of the Bernie Marino Companies, the largest luxury dealership chain, and that's a car dealership, car dealerships in the Midwest. And where we left off was uh, talking about fans as opposed to customers. And we spent an hour with the founder of Metro Bank and what was amazing, and Commerce Bank, and what was amazing about his philosophy was that he didn't want customers, he wanted fans, and he even wrote a book about that. Talk about your stance on customers versus fans.
5: Yeah, it, it, we don't even call it, we don't even say the word customer, because customer implies a transaction, and uh, what, we, what we ultimately want to create is a group of friends selling cars to other friends, and um, and, and we look at it as clients, because we look at it as a long relationship with that client, not just one car, or one service visit. And we make our team members realize that everything that our company does revolves around that client relationship.
0: Well, and in the end, if you do this right, that's a massive unpaid sales force you have if you just take care of your clients. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's
5: it's dramatically harder to get a client than to keep a client. And uh, so we look at the little things, again, little details. So we have things like, for example, we have a vision statement that our people... Uh, carry with them at all times that they need to know. It's, it's very, very important. We have commandments. So, uh, you know, I went to Catholic school and they had the Ten Commandments, but the Ten Commandments are very negative. It tells you all the stuff not to do. Right. So we have something called the Ten Commandments of our company. And it starts with having fun. Because why would you want to come to a company or a job that we're not having fun? So right. having fun is one of our commandments. Thou shalt have fun. <laughs> and, so we, and, and all of our team, our, all of our team members know those Ten Commandments and so they got to follow them. It's pretty basic stuff.
0: Yep, pretty basic stuff, and I got to tell you, you're starting with the big one because folks, you know, when you're having fun, you, having fun ripping people off isn't. It can't be fun. It no, can't be. No,
5: absolutely. No. And, and, and so, it, and, it's, it's, and that wouldn't be that would be the opposite of the type of people that we want to hire.
0: That's exactly right. And I think the reputation that that, that, that I think and the reason why people didn't want to go to car dealers, and I think you'll appreciate this. I put myself through law school uh, leasing cars. And I had just oh, yeah. found that that the way that uh, car leasing companies were working, they were hiding the interest rates. They were calling these things money factors. They were selling the cars up. And all I did was treat the car lease like a sale. I had total transparency. And the next thing I know, I not only had great cars because I was buying the trades for a fair price, Brian, but I, I had these incredible customers who were coming to me, and then I was just selling the car. I was just handling the transactional side because the financial guys in these dealerships were, so, so many of them were ripping people off.
5: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I tell our team all the time car dealerships didn't get a reputation by accident. Uh, and so that's the good news is that the business that we're in is a low bar that we have to cross, and we just make certain that we blow that bar away.
0: Yeah, and I think Bernie that the 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 Saturn people were trying to get around that, but yep. that that wasn't the answer, was it?
5: No, because Saturn Saturn no, Saturn had a lot of great uh uh things to it. There's no question about that. I think that where Saturn went wrong is that the, the they just never General Motors just never invested uh money in making the car great. Right. So so had they made a great car, it would have been <laughs> great, but uh but you know, there's there's just so much of what Saturn did that really changed changed the business. It was a long time ago, so it was. And we're we're doing those. We're still putting those things in place in our company.
0: Right, but in the end, if you don't have the cars, or um, you know, the fan experience, some of it has to do with the customer contact. But in the end, the product you're selling better be a good product too.
5: Yeah, exactly. Because that that was the thing. The process was so strong that it carried Saturn for years. But eventually, General Motors milked that product. And, and killed Saturn by not had general motors invested a, a normal amount of money in product development. Saturn would be, be the biggest car company uh, out there right now today because the process just killed it. Yep. They, they did the opposite. They bled, they bled, they bled the process down to nothing.
0: Yeah. And, and again, this is a, this is what can happen with big corporations. Um, they can just, they can, you know, sometimes just miss it and talk about the products. Um, talk about cars today uh, uh, as opposed to 20 years ago, and talk about some of your favorites.
5: Yeah, well, uh, Mercedes-Benz for sure. Uh, you know, I, I got, again, like I mentioned, my dad loved Mercedes. I love Mercedes. Uh, we have three Mercedes-Benz dealerships. It's definitely the uh, – you're, you're not supposed to have favorites with kids or, or dealerships. <laughs> <But> <laughs> in my case, I violate that rule. And Mercedes is for sure um, my favorite car. I would say after that, Porsche. Uh, you know, Porsche just is probably the best-engineered vehicles in the world. You can't just can't beat it. Yep. Uh, and uh, that, you know, so those are the cars I drive every day. Uh, we're we're very uh, uh, bullish on Infiniti. We think Infiniti for, is a as a value luxury brand. is a great great brand. And, uh, and and then Buick and GMC. I mean, I think from from General Motors uh, after the bankruptcy. They, those are the two strongest brands, I think that, that General Motors has is Buick and GMC. So we're very bullish about that brand as well.
0: Well, that's fantastic. And you know, and going back to that culture we were talking about, um, you you give away your cell phone number to your to your clients. I, right. I, I would I would guess that not many uh, heads of dealerships do that. Why do you do that?
5: Well, you can't. This is this is I think the biggest issue that that companies have. Every company, literally every company, talks about great customer service. Everybody does. But there's a hypocrisy because they don't deliver great customers. Every company doesn't deliver great customers. And the leaders of those companies are the ones that preach one thing and do another. So, for example, if I say that our clients are the most important thing, well, then why wouldn't I give myself another? Right. They're more important than I am, aren't they? So if a client wants to get a hold of me and email me or uh, 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 call me, i got to make that easy because otherwise my team will say, well, obviously, you're better than they are. And the answer is I'm not. uh, Service means to serve. So I'm here to serve our clients just like our team members are.
0: And, you know, what's interesting also is maybe you're creating the culture that says, if I can just get high enough up the ranks, I don't have to deal with those pesky customers either.
5: Right, exactly, exactly. So what does that say to people?
0: Yeah, it's it's really terrible. You know, we had the the head of of human talent, and they don't call it human resources at Chick-fil-A, but uh, Deanna, I'm I'm not recalling her last name, but Deanna is her first name, terrific lady. And she was talking about at Chick-fil-A how whenever they have to fire someone in the end, and they don't do it often, they really blame themselves because it meant that they hadn't hired right. When you go out to hire folks... What are you thinking about? what are you looking for? And for all the parents out there that are listening, you're listening to out to now to a guy who actually hires. What are you looking for?
5: Personality you can't you can't train you can't train personality, you can't train morals, you can't train train work ethic and you can't train honesty. Those, that's absolutely the most important thing uh, that you got.
0: And then from there, the rest is just you know some teaching and some learning. Um, but if you don 't have those core values, how do you ferret them out? how do you How do you know what 's what? How do you know a person has honesty? How do you figure that one out?
5: Uh, you look at their track record I think you you, you know good interviews, good background checks, good uh, uh, ability to really get get into their uh, into their history a little bit. but you can see it in their personality you know somebody 's attracted to my company in sales, for example because they want to make a killing selling uh, in terms of money with individual car transactions, that's not for me. Yep. Because because I'm more interested in somebody who says to me, "Hey, listen, I, I want to make a little bit less money than normal on sales of cars, but make it up over the period of 10, 15, 20 years with that client. That's much more appealing. So you get a sense of what they're all about that way.
0: Yeah, that's so true. And I mean, if somebody wants to dig in with you for 10 or 15 years because they want the repeat business, they're telling you they don't want to work 70 hours a week for three years and burn out. They want to work 45 hours a week, but with integrity, and stay in for a long time and meet their clients at the Little League field and not hide under a rock. And not hide under a rock. When we come back, we're going to dig a little into public policy. We're going to talk a little about the obstacles that business folks face, uh, more in our American Dreamers series. And for the hour, we have Bernie Marino, owner of the Bernie Marino Companies, the largest luxury car dealership chain in the Midwest, And he started it from scratch, digging into his own pocket and risking everything he had with one dealership. And now, oh my goodness, a nice little empire. More after these messages. This is lee habib and this is our american stories and we've been spending the hour in a delightful way we love talking to american dreamers because my goodness if you're listening to this it just lifts the spirits i mean imagine uh, working for someone who has a 10 commandments and the most important commandment is thou shall have fun and by the way this is the spirit of american business in the end it's almost every entrepreneur i've ever met You know, you're not going to get anywhere without a happy workforce and a workforce that really likes coming to work. What a crazy idea. And, Bernie, thanks so much for joining us.
5: Colin, it's a pleasure.
0: Hey, one more cultural point before we then dig into the uh, public policy space. You know, I I, I co-write columns with a guy named Mike Levin, who's grown some very big businesses. And what he's always worried about is too much senior management and too much distance between him and the people on 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 the ground and that in the end, too many vice presidents can really mess up an operation. And and talk about that as you grow, um, what you worry about, and what the hardest fights are internally. Forget what, what the government's doing. We're going to get to that next. But internally, and not your comp- competition, just inside your own culture, how do you keep what you have?
5: That is a, that is a remarkably important point, and I made that mistake. I, I created a structure where I had... Uh, layers, extra layers in there with vice presidents and a chief operating officer and all that stuff, and it did separate me from my people, and the company suffered as a result. So subsequently, I've gotten rid of all that structure, and uh, now it's me, general manager, and then the people who work in the store, and that has made a giant difference in the culture because the cult, the culture dried up the minute I put those layers in place. Yeah, because t- typically those people don't, or at least in my case, they weren't able to articulate our company culture the same way. And without culture, you're just another company.
0: Yeah, you know, there's this great moment in uh, in the history of the National Press Club where people had wondered how Bobby Knight had managed all those years. And like Bobby Knight, the coach at Indiana, or don't like him, his boys never got in trouble. They all graduated. And, but one, Isaiah Thomas, who he guilted into coming back and finishing. And so he's at the National Press Club, and he said, how did you do it? Somebody asked him, how did you do it? And he, he's brought with him two props. One is the Manhattan phone book, and he said, these are the NCAA rules and regulations. He drops them. There's a thud. Then he reaches into his pocket and he has the Ten Commandments. He goes, "These these basic rules work pretty well for me," and yeah, there you go. and I think it's that. I think it's that. Um, I, I, you know, I'm sorry you had to go through the the land of vice presidents and getting rid of them, but boy, what an important lesson for even the owner to learn.
5: Yeah, exactly. No,
0: absolutely. Let's talk absolutely. about let's talk about the government and let's talk about first uh, things out there that uh, as an entrepreneur you wish might be different, if you were getting to talk to the next future president of the United States about what might be impediments to growth, um, what might help you and your workforce as it relates to benefits, what would you tell them?
5: The government needs to stay out of the, the way of job creators. Uh, you know, the, the government should be, you should be looking at, if you run the United States of America as a politician, you should be looking at it and saying, how do we support enhance?" and make the lives better of people creating jobs, which are business people, and people who work in those companies. How to make their lives better. Instead, the current debate is all about how do we control, how do we put a barrier, how do we make things more difficult, how do we tax to create a giant centralized behemoth entity, which was never envisioned by our founding fathers. The fact that there's a million people that work in the executive branch, I think our our founding fathers are rolling over in our graves.
0: Well, and imagine what we just learned from you, because this I think this applies to public and private sector. The bigger stuff gets and the more vice presidents and the more bureaucrats there are, the bigger the distance between the customer, the taxpayer, and right. the and and the and the CEO. And exactly. uh, and so if that happened to you, Bernie, in your business, I I can't imagine how you run a government with a million employees.
5: You can't. The answer is you don't. I mean there's well, thousands, tens of thousands of people working in the education of US Department of Education doing what? They're not educating kids. You know, that money, if there there's one thing that I think could be a possible silver lining that comes out of this election, if Trump were to win, it would be that the power goes back to the states. Uh, there's been a giant seismic shift, one slash at a time, where power shifted to the centralized bureaucracy in Washington, D.C. Yep. And if you look at what's the most efficient form of government, it's the mayor. He's not a partisan. He's not talking about gay marriage and abortion and immigration. You know what he's talking about? Hey, you have a pothole in front of your street? Yep. We've got to fix that. Yep. I've got to get a business in the town. I'm going to go to that ribbon-cutting ceremony. I'm going to go to that business owner and say, how do I make your job better? You bet. You know, we, deal, we deal with, uh, I think, 14 municipalities, and they're all fabulous because yep. it's the, they know that if I bring jobs to their city, they're going to have more money to do the things that they need to do in that town. The further you get disconnected, county, state. Still close because you can make a lot of influence there. But once it goes to Washington, D.C., it's gone. It just goes into a black hole. That's crazy. You know, the central government, you read a book called The Quartet that talks about our four most important founding fathers. It talks about they envisioned a very, very small centralized government that basically provided for the defense of the country. And that's it.
0: And that's it. And and what's interesting is you know, I was listening to David McCulloch. He was giving a talk on 1776. And towards the end, someone had said something like, hey, what do you think of what's going on in America with, like, those Tea Party groups and this? And there it, it seems to be a lot of dissent in the country. And he goes, well, I can say this because I don't weigh in on anything that hasn't happened within the last 50 years. Historians have to wait 50 years. But our founders, I can promise you this, felt a foreign government ruling over their intimate day-to-day life and they didn't like it and so they revolted and i think now the american citizens tea party not tea party are feeling like there's this big foreign government but it's in washington dc but it's still foreign the state houses have they can't print money and they have to hit a budget the local mayor oh my goodness he just has to get things done and so i think that that gets to your point and and that leads me to this franchise uh discussion um t- what what's going on uh, with this um, debate and discussion as it relates to the protection of franchise owners. And where are you uh, on this?
5: I, I think the pendulum, the pendulum uh, uh, has swung too far where uh, dealers have gotten together and influenced politicians too strongly to make it so crippling for manufacturers to be able to operate their brands properly that there needs to be some equilibrium back into the system. Uh, You know, the the laws should protect and create value for franchises, uh, but it can't be to the point where, like teachers' unions, like police unions, uh, that you can't get rid of the bad ones. I think when that happens and it's too far the other way, it's, it's a problem. Again, you don't want it to be completely... Uh, because otherwise you you lose the value as a franchisee, which the franchise or doesn't want that to happen. Of course. Uh, uh, But the pendulum is definitely swung to it. I'll I'll give you an example. If Tesla chooses to sell cars in my market on their own and they don't have dealers, God bless them. Now, I'll look at it and say, I want to be right next to that Tesla dealership because what I'm going to do is I'm going to run it as an entrepreneur and I'm going to run circles around that that enterprise uh, because they're going to have a bunch of, uh, disconnected, like we just talked about, people who have no vested interest in what happens in that market. Right. So over time, they won't succeed. But I got to prove that thesis. I, I don't want a law to prove that thesis.
0: Right. Exactly. Right? I got
5: to add value to the chain. So if yeah. Tesla wants to sell cars without dealerships. God bless them. Do it.
0: Yeah, my dad was a superintendent of schools, and he was always leading the charter school movement and the voucher movement. And all the the superintendents, why are you doing this? He goes, I want the competition. If a parent wants to leave this school, I want to give them the money and let them go somewhere else. That's that. And they thought he was crazy, but that's actually what makes for better schools, the same things that make for, well, better soap and better deodorant, for goodness sake.
5: Absolutely, absolutely. And so, yep, so I'm all for competition. And, and so you can't you can't be for free enterprise and competition unless it affects you. <laughs>
0: right, right, exactly right. It's not, and everybody else, that's great, but not me. And and thanks for taking that position because too often folks are for or are, are for business, like pro business. I don't want to be pro business. I don't want to be anti business. I want to be for free enterprise and I want to be for competition because that helps the customer in the end. Um, exactly, And right. that's the pro-consumer uh, advocacy that, that's best. Final thoughts for folks listening uh, who don't know anything about uh, job creation and don't know about that first day, that day you leveraged everything. Uh, were you terrified? Were you excited? Uh, or both?
5: I joke that there's uh, three emotions that come into play, total and complete fear, total and complete joy, and total and complete nervousness. <laughs> and uh, you just got to get the mix right.
0: <laughs> and you got to live in that space and just keep marching yeah. forward.
5: you got yeah, you, got, you can't, uh, you, uh, listen, you're gonna, you know, uh, as uh, Shakespeare said, better to have loved and lost than never to have loved, loved at all. So better to have tried and failed than never to have tried at all.
0: And, and, and do you have kids, Bernie? I
5: have four kids.
0: And, and, and I assume you, you, you've taught them and instilled in them the same values that, uh, that your folks did.
5: Yeah, that's what we've certainly strived to do that,
0: absolutely. Well, I know I did hear you say you can buy any car you want with your own money. So that, no, That's the same. That sort of was the cue. Well, we appreciate yeah. you joining us. So Bernie Marino, owner of the Bernie Marino Companies, the largest luxury car dealership chain in the Midwest, started with his own money, which was money he saved, started with one dealership that uh, a guy named Pensky couldn't get to work, and uh, he got it to work. And it started with uh, millions in sales and is now up to the... And get me, if I'm right here, you said, Bernie, a billion in sales now?
5: A billion in sales,
0: yep. That's crazy. Uh, well, we, we look forward to visiting you when we're up in the area. And thanks so much for joining us. All right, thank you. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And this is our American Dreamer series. And it's brought to us, as always, by the great folks at Job Creators Network who are concerned always with the small business becoming a bigger business, and trying to fight the impediments that are in the way of that happening. And we heard that voice of Bernie, and my goodness, you want to be on the side of these guys. They can change your town, and they can change the city, a state. And my goodness, we unleash the spirit of these guys. Thou shalt have fun. Yeah, they say that in Washington. Yeah, thou shalt have fun with our money. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Story.